Hello, and welcome to the next installment of the SOF Heyman Bookshelf, a podcast celebrating recent work by faculty members in the arts and sciences at Columbia University. I'm Constantine Lignos. This episode, celebrating recent work by Nicholas Bartlett, is drawn from a panel brought together virtually on April 8, 2022, to discuss Bartlett's recently published book, Recovering Histories, Life and Labor After Heroin in Reform-Era China. Nicholas Bartlett is an assistant professor of contemporary Chinese culture and society at Columbia University's Barnard College. His training is in medical anthropology and psychoanalysis. Recovering Histories, Bartlett's first book, looks at long-term heroin users' experiences recovering from addiction in Gezhou, a mining town in southwest China's Yunnan province. Though Bartlett first traveled to China for HIV-related work, after meeting recovering heroin users, he was inspired to center his fieldwork around them. Let's listen. People in Gezhou would often say, you're late, when they understood my project. And they said, if you were interested in the heroin epidemic here, you really should have been here in the late 1980s and 90s. By 2009, which is when I first arrived, the number of users in the city was rapidly shrinking. And those who were identified as addicts, which had sort of become this category of person, were in their late 30s and 40s. After moving to Guizhou, a project that was initially interested in heroin use quickly became focused on recovery from long-term addiction. Initially, I became intrigued by how people with heroin use history often stuck spoke of being stuck in the past, in, in the country's recent past. Life after heroin, for some people, that I came to know required catching up to the movement of the country in some way. So I want to quickly make a distinction starting here between two different words for recovery, and I think they relate to this project. The first is a more straightforward term of quitting drugs, diadu in Chinese, and it focuses on sort of the quantitative accumulated time of staying clean of opioids. My focus and interest really became on a second way of talking about addiction, which is return to society, this latter term not only opened up broader questions about what is an adequate life for a person with long history of heroin use and what futures do they imagine, but also how individuals came to speak about and live within broader collective historical trajectories. So my book really tracks the way in which individuals and groups came to define and live their response to return in the city. The introduction sets out the way that I did this fieldwork, and it's a phenomenological approach that's interested really in experience uh, with a particular focus on historicity, the form of being and becoming in time. And I pay really close attention to the way that people with heroin use history were moving through the world and attempting to build their lives after drugs. Chapter one opens the scene of Gujo. And in the late 1980s in this mining city, heroin and the opening of the mountain, the arrival of heroin and the opening of the mountain to private sector are intimately connected. And I trace the story of three young people who uh, were sort of moving from their parents' sort of iron rice bowl, state-owned enterprise life that had dominated this area into, onto the mountain and exploring how early heroin use was interwoven with really complicated questions about what it meant to live in the city at that moment, and also to the mountain, which is sort of a figure in this book. Each of the final five chapters is a way of answering this question of what is return. So chapter two focuses on an entrepreneur and sort of a big brother. Literally, he was sort of uh, he used to be allowed that like muscle, but also he was sort of a big brother figure to me when I was settling into to, to the city. Sort of thinking a little bit about for him, the question of recovery was a certain form of catching up, which was 
how to become an entrepreneur of the 21st century was a very, very specific preoccupation of his. And that he'd been really successful early in his career, but he argued precisely the qualities that made him a great, in this early moment on, on the mountain, those qualities were keeping him, him back in the current moment. And I sort of think about hysteresis effect and, and, and being stuck in particular ways. Chapter three focuses on uh, a group of people who were really incredibly stuck the question of return was already foreclosed. It was sort of, they had a very particular way of narrating themselves as sacrificial offerings of the reform era. And I explore the, the ways in which a particular form of narrative and plotment actually closed down the possibilities for living in the future. Chapter four is about the therapeutic value of socialist labor. And a really key aspect of the people with heroin use history is their movement in and out of labor camps. And they really are remnants of their re-education through labor system, the Maoist system. And so thinking about lives that in the past have been about economic employment in various parts of this dynamic economy and spurts of heroin use where they weren't necessarily working for long periods of time in these state detention centers. And when I came to know them, the movement between idling outside the centers and laboring inside the centers created a really complicated form of claims that they had on the state as they thought about the potential for laboring to bring them back to society. Chapter five follows a woman and her husband who were getting married as I arrived in Kutu and really thinks about caring labor and a particular work of kinship that, as I came to understand her version of return to society, was the way that she came to understand the possibilities of re-entering the workforce on her own times and also having a particular type of family struggling against very difficult dynamics. Chapter six, so, so we've got here to the moment, return as reinvention as an economic actor, return as uh, already prematurely foreclosed, return through particular forms of state-guided laboring, and then return through a particular type of working on relationships. Uh, the final form, a uh, person who I came to know inverted the question. And he was a civil society activist who said, actually, my particular life trajectory gives me the qualities that this country needs. And so people need to follow me and people like me in pushing the country in new directions. By exploring his activities and his leadership, but also the complicated other narratives that I'm hearing about him, I begin to question the phenomenological approach and sort of begin to undo certain parts of the work of the chapters that have come before it. And a dream helps to, to clarify certain limits to this project. The coda is 2018 returning and going back onto the mountains with a mining boss who takes me to the site where he started using heroin and also made a, a small fortune as a private mining boss. And I sort of reflect on what this story might mean for, for China more broadly. I'm aware of this celebration, uh, is, is it, is it, even as I'm in Taipei, it's really joyous for me, but also one of the many you know, difficulties of COVID has not been able to go back to Gutiérrez. 2018 was the last time I was there. And so there are lots of people who I'm very aware, especially today, who I really want to uh, have the chance to be with in person, um, who, who I haven't had that opportunity. So I really hope to sometime soon. Next, we'll hear from Eugenia Lin, Professor of Chinese History in Columbia University's Department of East Asian Languages and Cultures. She'll speak about the issue of historicity in Nicholas's work and the temporal regimes employed by scholars in describing PRC China, that is, China after the 1950s. Let's listen. The 
issue of historicity is uh, extremely important here and central to Nick's analysis. Historians have actually examined also different temporal regimes that characterize PRC China. One that immediately comes to mind is Gail Hershatter's work, which is also a wonderfully moving work, oral histories, interviewing women who are now 80, 90 years old about their experiences of early socialist China, right, the 1950s, and sort of teasing out through their memory work different temporal experiences of the past, whereas men understood and remembered the 1950s through campaign time, through the cycles of campaigns of the 50s, women remembered that period through bodily experiences, through familial time markers. And what I really enjoyed about Hershatter's work was how it really sort of challenged the idea of this kind of all-encompassing party state regime that dominated the everyday. And she was able to tease out from below sort of different ways of experiencing the temporality of early socialist China. Nick does the same for reform era China and in certain ways also brings us to focus really on the intimate and bodily experience of recovery. What I just love is taking kind of together both of these studies kind of illuminate why China is actually so effective to do this kind of project, in part because of China itself, the PR state was really engaging in radical experimentation of different regimes of labor. And I think labor is central to both your work and uh, Hershatter's work. New forms of political economy were being introduced 50s, 60s, 70s, and now 80s, right? And so, you know, what I find so effective with Nick's analysis is that he really looks at how those regimes kind of shift from the socialist era to the post-socialist period and how those regimes of labor shape how his longtime users who are now re-entering society experience that re-entry and how some of the previous errors sort of sense of temporality they cup they carry with them and that's part of the, the disjuncture right their 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 in their disorientation their inability to enter two quick uh, issues one is the issue of historicity also brings me to your choice of using reform china and never using the term post socialist and i wanted to question perhaps why that's the case. I, I One of the thoughts that came to mind is the notion of post, which has a certain temporality that perhaps you want to avoid. Post suggests the end of history, the end of socialism. You know, you end actually with Dai Jinghua in your epilogue and you cite her and she talks about Xi Jinping China as being post-post-Cold War when Xi Jinping China enters the neoliberal temporality. Is your decision not to use post-socialist in part because you are illuminating the multiplicities of time that characterize the Xiaoping era. And the second question is the mountain. Uh, the mountain looms so large in your book. You start with the mountain and then you end with the mountain when you return with the mining boss. And the mountain that you return to is a spectral one. It's the ghost of what it once was, right? The mountain that you began with was one that was teeming with activity, teeming with life, its veins flowed of both tin and heroin, as did the veins of your interlocutors. And then you end with this mountain that's almost a ghost. The mountain itself and the physicality that it kind of brought to the study was something that made me just even more curious about the landscape. Is, is it as spectral as you suggest today? Is there hope for recovery of the mountain itself? Once again, with his response, here is Nicholas Bartlett the mountain and its spectral presence, because it's always there in the, in the background and because I and the people who I 
new, we're moving on to it in so many different ways. It really did become a way of, of, of speaking about what types of individual and, and collective projects were possible. And so there, there are a whole bunch of, throughout the question of, of its status as a symbol in, in, in their lives and the different ways that people take it up, sort of absolutely. And it's also a way actually of linking this group back, because I think another reason why this group is important is because they're offering a perspective and a memory, but also a sort of a particular trajectory through the country that's not a, that's not a familiar one. There's been a lot written about rural urban and these gaps and west and east and sort of a certain gap in terms of the development and sudra and all these sorts of things, the quality of people um, sort of, and it's always the, the sort of rural workers are trying to catch up to urban workers. And, and here, it, sort of the way in which it's predominantly Han, I think is important, even as it's in a minority area, it's Han workers who have a particular relationship to families of, of quite good, good backgrounds. So they tended to be from families that had excellent position in the, in the 70s and 80s. And so when this sort of the complicated ways that they're caught up in the different moments of the reform is, is I think why in part I, I choose to think about reform and different ways of understanding the waves that are happening and how they're caught up in them and that what that means for, for the city and country. This post-socialist question, I mean, all of the ways in which Gudio remains in key ways a Maoist stronghold. And I think part of what was so fascinating about living there was coming to understand how important sort of as a place where the iron rice bowl ideals and Yunnan Tin, but these other SO, state-owned enterprises completely dominated the way that people came to move onto and off of the mountains for you know well over three decades. Um, and sort of the legacies of that project, I mean, clearly uh, sort of the, there, were, there, there have been waves of, of listing these SOEs on the market and the, the city was declared a resource depleted in 2008. So it is looking to sort of a post mining future while I'm there. This is an active collective sort of crisis for people living there. With that said, sort of the, the, way, yeah, the way that certain sensibilities live on, especially in a certain generation and the way that I came to understand that people with heroin use history Still, the reference points were sort of, for example, in the 1980s, sort of 86, 87, 88, um, the very first detox centers, everybody sort of, there's the, the, these labor camps that, that dominate a certain understanding of the, and then there's hospitals, but the first really important detox centers for most people in the area were actually the SOE work units of them or their parents would set up anywhere they could sort of within sort of the areas where they're living immediately close to their families, these centers and a particular way of thinking about the community working towards recovery. Um, sort of you could deliver, families could deliver meals and your job was insured and all of these different ways that people who had heroin use history remained within, within these links and within a certain understanding of their position within this, this, um, this broad, broader collective was still so moving to people, even as the centers didn't work. Uh, it was overwhelmed by, by heroin and very quickly sort of the non-professional SOEs were pushed out and then it became sort of this police and ministry of labor. Other groups were not allowed to, to enter in. It became the, sort of these very particular domains by sort of 1990. But the, this small moment of, of that legacy. So I guess I'm interested, I, I, yeah, the, the post for me does feel too, too definitive, especially given the way in which People's projects, the life projects are still in certain ways 
set by their relationship to the 80s. And not everybody is trying to break away. Some, it's precisely trying to find back certain legacies of the 80s simpler way of living that they lost it would, be, would be a certain way of return. Next, we'll hear from Alan Tran, assistant professor of anthropology at Bucknell University. He used Nicholas's book in his advanced seminar on medical anthropology, and here reflects on the experience of teaching this text. Take a listen. What my students really appreciated and often commented on is the rich ethnography and the detailed world that Nick constructs for the readers. The voices of Meng, Shun, and the colorful cast of characters that anchor each of the chapters drives the theoretical um, arguments and the ethical commitments of the book forward. Now, I know that Nick is highly attuned to the dynamics of transference and counter-transference between researchers and their interlocutors, although he may disagree with my choice of terminology here. And he is careful to show his analytical work without getting in the way of or even overwhelming the progression of the book's claims. So in this regard, recovering histories is refreshingly grounded, especially compared to a growing and unfortunate, in my view, trend in Asian studies of speculative arguments that conveniently give voice to the ideological axes that the authors are keen to grind. So that's what I really appreciated as an instructor, is how Nick challenges us what to expect in a book on recovery from heroin addiction. Uh, Most surprisingly for a phenomenological study, the experience of the substance itself, uh, for example, the highs, the withdrawals, and the cravings are notably absent. This is a nod of respect to the individuals recovering from their former addictions and the traumas inflicted upon themselves. So this not only forces us as readers to directly engage with the interlocutor's own circumstances, it also casts heroin itself as spectral presence throughout the book. So the quote-unquote lateness of Nick's arrival in Guizhou becomes, I find this really fascinating prism into an understudied kind of element of the so-called opioid epidemic. So this quote-unquote return to society opens up questions of the good life and the frustrations of grappling with the what-if questions that seem to haunt Nick's interlocutors seemingly as much as the addiction itself. So indeed, focusing on this return to society takes up the call made by other anthropologists studying substance abuse. Uh, Here I'm thinking of people like Angela Garcia, Jarrett Zigan, and Eugene Raquel, to extend the analysis of addiction beyond the individual. But it also brings in this really novel and nuanced exploration of historicity and recent events in Chinese history as a means to plot out the trajectory that seems doomed to fail the more it leans, ironically, on these notions of forward progress. So here, I think that the gaps and the sense of being out of the gameness that Charles mentions becomes a a great kind of framework for us as readers and for Nick himself to kind of structure the book's argument about this kind of absent presence of heroin. And so I think that For me, as a psychological anthropologist, as a medical anthropologist, the contributions I find most exciting is how he takes up and revives the phenomenological turn in anthropology to focusing on the everyday and and really kind of sitting and dwelling in with these kind of banal moments that I have always found to be much more challenging to analyze than in the extraordinarily embodied moments of things like illness or healing, catharsis, and ritual. And so I just really appreciate and commend Nick for his uh, keen attunement to the small moments that make up his interlocutors' lives and their attempts to return to society. 
That's all the time we have for today. I want to thank Nicholas Bartlett and all of the panelists who were present at the event. My thanks to you as well for listening. Once again, today's episode was Celebrating Recent Work by Nicholas Bartlett. The title of his new book is Recovering Histories, Life and Labor After Heroin in Reform-Era China. The SOF Heyman Bookshelf is sponsored by Columbia's Office of the Divisional Deans at the Faculty of Arts and Sciences and the Society of Fellows and Heyman Center for the Humanities. Our theme music is Moonrise by Paddington Bear from soundofpicture.com. I hope you'll join us again next time. <laughs>